I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning to Ephesians chapter 1, or rather 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. Would you stand with me out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? We're going to read verses 1 through 5, but our text this morning is just verse 5. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You may be seated. Jesus tells um, a great parable about possession and loss. Seems to me that is a a good entry point to our text this morning to be thinking in that perspective. And the, the parable I'm thinking of is the parable of the lost coin. You probably learned it on your mama's knee about this dear retired lady who had ten precious silver coins. She kept them in her own home safety deposit box. And don't know the reason, but apparently one day she went to uh, inspect that box to see how her retirement savings was doing. And as she reached into that, she uh, grabbed a handful of those coins and as she pulled them out, she counted them one by one. And she... Uh, uh, found out, behold, she only had nine coins all of a sudden. But we can imagine the, the panic and the anxiety that, that gripped her because this is her savings. She'd spent her life working and putting money aside so that she would be able to have something to live on in, in her golden years, the sunset years. And and as she reached into that bottle and she found only nine coins, all of a sudden, within a moment's time, she realized that a tenth of her retirement savings was gone. We can imagine that she picked up that safety deposit box and shook it violently, hoping that maybe somehow one of those silver coins had been lodged somewhere in there. But eventually, what she discovered is there was, um, there was a missing coin. And Jesus said she did what anybody would do in that situation. She grabbed her flashlight, she got down on her hands and knees, and she low-crawled around the room looking for that coin. She probably looked under the bed, she looked under the shelves, she picked up the rug and shook it out and swept the place clean. And at the end of it all, she couldn't find that coin. And all of a sudden, perhaps lodged in the corner or some hidden away place, she 
laid her eyes upon that gleaming silver tenth coin. And you know what Jesus said? She was so overwhelmed with joy that she not only laughed out loud, but she sent out invitations to all her friends and neighbors to come have a party at her house to celebrate with her. Because what was lost was now found. You see, she experienced joy and then a gnawing, disturbing sense of loss. You might wonder this morning uh, what such stories of, of losing lost coins or retirement savings has to do with spiritual matters. Doesn't feel too much like Sunday talk, does it? Until you realize that Jesus told that story to illustrate a great principle and truth, which is Jesus said that the joy that woman felt upon finding that lost tenth silver coin, which is a part of her retirement portfolio, is precisely the joy in heaven's halls at the sight of a sinner repenting and exercising faith and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That the halls of heaven are filled with uproarious joy when somebody is saved and brought to Jesus. Because that which is lost is found. We have a sense of that here in our text, and perhaps it's not in so many words here on the surface of it, but these Thessalonians had a sense of joy, of having possessed something, and then felt like it was all taken away. And what Paul wants to do for that congregation of believers is to restore their joy. And here's how it happened. After the Apostle Paul was unceremoniously bounced out of Thessalonica, after he had ministered there and preached the gospel there, and sought to want Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and pagans under the Lord Jesus, well, he was kicked out of town. And then after he left, some very bad actors came to town and began telling people that whatever they had experienced was all just a bag of tricks. We're going to examine some of the Apostle Paul's language, which I told you last week in our introduction, would fall under that heading of confirmation. Because his character and his ministry and his teaching had been attacked. But the casualty of that attack wasn't just the Apostle Paul and his ministry. It was the people who had come to Christ under it. And what they were being told is the Apostle Paul had uh, sprinkled some angelic pixie ducks uh, over their life, perhaps, and uh, they had experienced some sort of psychological manipulation, but if they were to look down into their hearts, they were still as dark as they were before they ever came to Jesus Christ. They were lost. They were hopeless. This was just all a bunch of counterfeit joy and salvation. The result was the people of God in Thessalonica, well, they had become discouraged. You know why? It's because of what's bound up in verse 9 here, one of the greatest texts of the New Testament, for that matter, I'll say in the whole Bible. Because here the Apostle Paul says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols. 
You see, as these people in Thessalonica, the vast majority of them began to look at their family tree and they went back as far as the records could be searched out. And what they found out was in every single generation behind them, their mom, their dad, their granddaddy, their grandmama, everybody behind them were a bunch of idolaters and pagans. They had been trapped in the darkness of delusion and false religion and vain philosophy. But when the Apostle Paul had come preaching, their whole lives had been radically reoriented and turned around, and they now knew gospel grace. And yet these bad actors came alongside the Apostle after he had finished his preaching and teaching and tried to persuade this congregation that it was just a fantasy. There had been no change. There was no difference. There was no salvation. And there was no joy to be had. Imagine that's you this morning. That the joy of salvation which each and every believer has and should have is radically just wiped away and it's as if as your mind is deleted and, and all of your sense of experience of grace is just stolen from you. And the thing that you were counting on for eternal life, you were told, was just a bunch of lies. It was mythology. It was just psychological manipulation. It was just a bag of tricks. Well, taken from you. Well, you would sense great feeling of anxiety because you had and now you don't have just like that poor old widow who searched for her tenth silver coin to a congregation that is so deeply troubled not because of something they've done but because of what other people have done as they engaged in character assassination and and uh, sought to uh, undermine the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes to this uh, Thessalonican church and, and he says, I want you to have something very precious. And that thing is assurance of your election. Now I'll show you where I'm getting it. I'm getting it from verse 4, from where the Apostle Paul says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, his election... Remember now, he has been unfolding this great evidence of, of grace that's at work in their life. This gospel grace, this sanctifying grace. And he says, it's so evident in, in you, your works of faith, your labors of love, your steadfastness of hope. The fact that you're beloved. But he says, here is the grand fountain and source of it all. God's election. What the apostle wants to do is persuade and assure the people of God that they have indeed been chosen by God. And if they've been chosen by God, then they have a right to deep and unshakable assurance of salvation. And we know that's exactly his purpose here because of the structuring of ideas as you move from this sweeping, powerful, deeply moving encouragement statement, he chose you, and now Paul grounds it in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with conviction. You see that? 
The great word for at the outset of verse 5 tells us the Apostle is saying, I want you this morning to know the deep joy and gratitude of your election by God. And so what we have here are two parts to our text. Grounds of assurance and then the purpose of assurance. Grounds of assurance and the purpose of assurance. And just so you can be persuaded, before we even begin to dig into uh, the argument of the apostle here for why the believer ought to be assured of God's love and God's election. As you can see for yourself, the apostle is seeking to persuade the people of God of this. And, and, And it's bound up, our confidence that he is doing that is bound up between these two statements of no. You see in verse 4, we know what the apostle knows. We are knowing He's saying that we are knowing you're beloved by God in your election. And then look at the very end of verse 5. And you have the apostles say, you know. See that? He forges a connection between these two knowing people, what the apostle knows and what they know. And between that, the apostle is saying, what we know is you're elect and what you know is that you're elect. And here's how you should know it. I just think about this doctrine of election here. Let's define it very quickly. It's the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby He, before the foundation of the world, out of grace, chose certain numbers unto redemption in Christ. The, the simple catechism way of saying that is election is, is God's individual choice of people in eternity past. In Christ under salvation. You see, it's about you. Forever and ever and ever and ever and as far back as you can think. The wonderful thought of election is this. God knew you. Got his name on his palm of his hand, as it were. He's always had his affections upon you. He's chosen you in Christ. He's chosen you for a great end. That you would be redeemed. The Apostle says, I know you're elect, and you know it too, because of this knowledge that we share. And I think it's very important that as the Apostle sets forth the knowledge we share, he doesn't refer to something esoteric. He doesn't say, God, give me a personal secret knowledge or secret message, and I'm sharing it now with you. He doesn't say, I've been able to search into the decrees of eternity, and I'm reporting to you now what I found after my search. No, what he says is, this is knowledge that we all share. And he presents to them two forms of evidence, objective knowledge and subjective knowledge. So let's think about the objective knowledge here as we're thinking about the grounds of assurance. There is objective knowledge, and that objective knowledge begins to flow after the word for. You can see here the apostle is persuading them why they should be elect. And the very first thing that he says unto them is, Our gospel did not come to you in word only. Interesting, right? Because the very first thing the Apostle Paul zeroes in on here to say, I know and you know that you should be assured of your election is because the gospel didn't come to you in word only. Well, 
Let's just pause because we're going to take up that idea. It didn't come in word only and unfold its subjective side. But, but it does mean, first of all, what Paul is saying, the grounds of your assurance of election is this. The gospel came to you in word. He points them to something objective, and that objective thing is the preaching of the gospel. So we can think about that, first of all, as the apostle points them to the word, not to themselves first, but to the word of God, to the written, holy, inspired, infallible scriptures. And here's what we remember about his preaching. It's summarized for us in Acts chapter 17. Where you're told there by Luke, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. The very first thing the Apostle Paul would say to those who were suffering and who uh, had become overwhelmed, perhaps, even by uh, some measure of anxiety and despair because their whole uh, assurance of salvation election had been completely eroded and undermined, he said, wait, go back to the Word. Find your hope and your encouragement in what is written. Remember the preaching of the word. He says, remember how I proclaimed Christ unto you. And so each part of this testimony here in Acts 17 from Luke is important because this tells us of the summary of Paul's preaching. Sure, this was in the synagogue, but there's no difference between what Paul preached in the synagogue and where he preached to the Gentiles somewhere else in Thessalonica. It's all the same gospel because he says our gospel, the consistent one, a single gospel. It says he explained. Uh, the first thing he did is he took the Bible and he opened up the Scriptures. And at this point in time, redemptive history, it would have been only the Old Testament. Perhaps at most there were two New Testament letters written by now, but Paul wasn't carrying those around in his back pocket. He was preaching from the Old Testament. You see that? And what he did is something very simple and very humble of a servant of God. He took the Bible and he said, I'm going to take my entire message right out of this word. It's not from my head. It's not what I feel in my heart. It's what God has inspired. And he explained it. He said, I'm just going to open up to you what these words say and what they mean and what their implications are. And he, he says he explained and he gave evidence. And I want you to notice what he said. First of all, what he said to them is Christ had to suffer. The first part of the gospel message the Apostle Paul opened up to them in the synagogue from the Bible is that Jesus Christ had to die. Remember that that message wasn't one that a Jew or even a Gentile would think was a very smart message. Right? The Apostle says, I could tell you what the world thinks of this message in 1 Corinthians 1. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. Moronic. And he said to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. He said, Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God, to everyone who believes. 
The first thing he said to them is that Christ had to suffer. And the second thing he said is that Christ had to rise from the dead. There is the power of the gospel that our hope rests not in one who merely died, but one who died in our place, took upon himself the wrath of God for our sin, and then rose triumphantly uh, over the power of death from the grave. So we serve a, a risen Savior, huh? He said, this Jesus, reference to his humanity, one who shares our flesh and blood, is the Messiah. And here's the, maybe the linchpin in it all was this. Had. It's the language of determination. It had to happen because it had been determined to happen. It had to happen because God ordained that it should happen. What the Apostle Paul says, the entire message of salvation is something that God decreed in eternity past for your salvation. And now notice the connecting point between their assurance and the message. Just as they had been chosen in Christ, so God had determined the message of redemption in eternity. And that message was a message of salvation in this crucified and resurrected Savior. So what he proclaimed to them was a Savior who redeemed them by works which he committed, which were appointed by eternal divine design. I think it's important for us this morning, people of God, to to see here, first of all, how the Apostle Paul pastors this church which is riddled with its concern. He points them to the foundation of faith, which is the Word of God. He said to them, their warrant for believing was not even in Him. You see, he'd been the one that was attacked, but he said, don't believe because of me. Believe because of the authority of the Word of God. I want you to know this morning, people of God, when you think about what it is that you believe and why it is that you believe it, it must always go back to this great touchstone and bedrock and foundation. You're not entitled to believe in something just because everybody else does or because your parents did or because that's the way everybody else is believing. You are entitled and warranted to believe in what you do to have a foundation for your faith to rest upon because God said it. That's the great foundation of faith, and that's what's always being assaulted, isn't it? The Word of God. It's authority. It's right to be believed. Well, Paul preaches uh, this morning to, to them and to us, the foundation, the objective grounds of assurance is this, the Word, the means, the preached gospel. It did its work. The word was proclaimed. And now notice here the second part of this uh, assurance. We, we move from what is objective to what is subjective. And we could say that the bulk of the verse is about that, but it's, but it's important we laid the foundation first on what's objective. Because he said our, word did, uh, uh, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but here are your key phrases now, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in conviction. 
Now notice here, the apostle lays out two subjective grounds for them to think about as they consider the assurance of their own election. He says the gospel came to them in power and in the Holy Ghost. That's one phrase. And then the next one, with full conviction. And and the other thing that I think is important here, and uh, we like to be grammar nerds here and there, uh, but in... I hope you see the preposition there in power and in the Holy Spirit. And it should really read in in full conviction. Well, each time that preposition in is used, it points to means. So once again, Paul is setting forth for them means by which they can discern the assurance of their election. He says, this is how we know that you've been chosen by God is because how the gospel came. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit. So think of the first thing that he said. The gospel came to you in power. What accounts for the conversion the Apostle Paul is basically asking them? He's getting them to think about it. Remember, they have been told that their experience here is a bunch of delusion. It's a bag of tricks. It's psychological manipulation. It's the effect of a spiritual magician, if you will. He says, hold on. Why were you saved? The first thing he said is the... The gospel came in word, but it wasn't just mere words. It came in power. The reason why they can trust their their great change that happened in their life, because it came in power. And then the connector and is important, because now the Apostle Paul is explaining why it came in power, or how it came in power, because it came with the Holy Spirit. See, the coupling of these things together is the explanation for how it could have done this. It is not a mysterious force. It wasn't the mere power of words or rhetoric. It wasn't the skillfulness or the artfulness of the speech. It was that it came in power because it came in the Holy Spirit. We pause to think about that for a moment because one of the things that we do want to say this morning is that the word all by itself is powerful. The gospel all by itself is powerful. Remember how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he said it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then to the Greek and to everyone who believes. He said, I am not ashamed of this message. And one of the reasons why he would have said that to the church in Rome is because the Christians had been kicked out of Rome for believing in a man named Crestus. The Romans had begun to develop a distaste for Christianity. And the Christian churches there, some of them had burned. People had had their property taken. They'd been assaulted. They'd been ashamed. They'd been afflicted. They'd gone through trial and tribulation for Christ. And so, as Paul writes that church, one of the things that he, that he says at the outset is, this gospel which I preach to you, which is our hope of eternal life, is something I'm not ashamed of. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel all by itself is a powerful gospel penetrates the ears, it goes to the heart, stamps the message upon the mind. But we need something more than just the word preached. For the gospel to come in power, we need the Holy Spirit. 
Can I show you a passage which bears that out? If you turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 2.14, you'll see the reason why the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to say it didn't just come in word only, it came in power and in the Holy Spirit. He's very specific about how it came. And this is about reinforcing them in their um, convictions and in their assurance. But one reason why it didn't just come in word and why it needed to come in power in the Holy Spirit is according to what the Apostle says here in verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who spiritually appraises all things. One of the things that's so important to think about here this morning is why does the Apostle Paul appeal to the gospel coming in word and power and the Holy Spirit? Because the Apostles is the natural man. That is the fallen sinner, the person who is in Adam, who's never come to Christ, who's never been saved. That is what the Bible calls the natural man. And the thing he says about the natural man is he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't do it. He says, because they are foolishness to him, and because he cannot. Did you know that that is the strongest negative you can use in Greek? (coughs) Cannot. See, it's not a matter of he uh, may or he may not. What the Apostle says, the power isn't in his hands. The reason why somebody listens to the Gospel message and goes home an unbeliever is not because there's something defective in the preaching of the Word or if there's something defective in Christ as Savior. It's because that person cannot embrace it because of their sin, because of the depravity of their heart. Because their will is enslaved. We're not good. The Apostle and Paul himself says that there is not one righteous, no, not one. You see, coming back to this idea of why the Apostle refers to this and why it accounts for subjective grounds of assurance as the Apostle is saying to them, you yourselves know as those who were steeped in paganism and idolatry and false religion in the worship and service of false gods, you could never have embraced this word by yourself. It was impossible. You didn't want to and you couldn't. The reason why their salvation counts, says the Apostle, is because it happened for reasons other than yourself. You were hostile to the truth and blind to the truth, ignorant to the truth. The reason why you embraced it is because it came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit who changed your heart, opened your mind, granted you illumination. One of the things that It's so important here is that the Apostle Paul is saying unto them, this is a reason why you should have confidence. Because your believing itself is a token of God's grace at work in you. I I think that is so important for you to think about here this morning because I know believers wrestle with whether they're saved here and there. If you've never done that, it's 
Well, it's wonderful because that's great. You have such a, a powerful form of, of assurance that I've never met you before and I'd like to hear your story. There's a lot of people who wrestle with their salvation. I remember years ago, I, I went to uh, visit an elderly widow and she had uh, a really unusual kind of joy about her which I say is unusual given the circumstances of her life. Her husband had died and she was destitute. She had just started coming to the church I was pastoring. I noticed that she was always reading theology books, could talk very intelligently about her faith. And I said uh, remarkably to her, I said, wow, this is really refreshing. How, How did you come to this point? And she said, well, I just decided I didn't want to live another day after my husband died if I didn't have assurance of my salvation. Think about that. I didn't want to live another day after my husband died if I didn't have assurance of my salvation. And she was an elderly lady who'd spent her entire life in the Reformed Church and had never had assurance of her salvation, and had never taken the supper of the Lord because she didn't think she was a true believer. Why? Because she had this gnawing doubt in her mind about certain things. You know, to know the assurance of your salvation is something critical to the spiritual life and to... um, You're thriving spiritually. And the Apostle Paul is going out of his way to say here, if you have any faith in your heart, it's not because you cultivated it. It's because God removed the barriers. It's because God did His work in you through His Word and by His Spirit. Look at that other phrase here. It's just as important. To, it explains that it came in power and um, by the Holy Spirit. This is how they can know they had this change and it was real. But he appeals to something quite tangible about their experience. And he says, with full conviction. With full conviction. Well, I have to tell you, in case your study Bible says it, <laughs> Sometimes we're competing against study Bibles up here. Some study Bibles tend to say that the full conviction is really a reference to the Apostle Paul and how he preached. If you look at Paul's argument here, that makes very little sense. Paul isn't trying to persuade them that he believes the gospel. He's persuading them that their belief in the gospel is genuine and real. Just a common sense perspective would tell me that's a bad interpretation, and grammatically I don't believe it's a sound interpretation either. What the Apostle Paul is essentially saying is this is what the Spirit of God produced in you. Conviction. Going back to that statement in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says the natural man doesn't receive them. He's not convicted by it at all. Why do they have this conviction? Well, the Apostle says, this is what the Spirit of God has worked in you. 
giving them assent to the truth. And we have an interesting confirmation of, of all of this over in Acts 17, 14, uh, 4, where, where Luke records the result of Paul's preaching. I want you to listen very carefully. It said, some of them were persuaded. They were persuaded. It's, it's a term taken from rhetoric. But the reason of their persuasion wasn't because of rhetoric. It's spelled out here. The reason for their persuasion of these things was because the gospel came in power and in the Holy Spirit. So that they were made able to believe and able to assent and able to trust. And so the apostle here is encouraging these downcast, downtrodden saints to say to them, your experience of grace is genuine. Because our gospel came to you in this way, demonstrates you're not only beloved by God, you're elect. Before we move on to our second point, I just want to make a couple of points of application. One of the things that I would say here is that it's quite obvious to us what the first point of application, or the main point of application would this be, is that you need assurance of your election, you're entitled to it, and here's how you get it. But one of the things that we need to say in advance of that is this, is what the Apostle Paul does here, is he shows us how to handle this doctrine with reference I wonder if you knew this this morning, but the Reformed and the Presbyterians have always been concerned to say that we must handle the doctrine of election with reverence. The Westminster Confession says, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. The Canons of Dort, which is another confessional document of the Reform, which was written to address people who denied that the Scripture taught this, as much as they affirmed it, here's what they said. It's still to be published in due time and place in the Church of God, provided it's done with reverence in the spirit of discretion and piety for the glory of God's name. You see, the Reformed were always concerned to make sure that when we spoke about this, when we preached it in the church, when we discussed it amongst ourselves, that one of the things we would do is we would handle it with care and with reverence. Why? Because when it's handled in irreverence and in a sloppy, uh, a high-handed way, people get undermined in their thinking and in their assurance. What Paul does here is he, in a very pastoral way, shows them that there is uh, this great available objective grounds for measuring their own assurance with and strengthening them in assurance because he handles it so carefully. We know his election of you because he points them to the Word. He points them to the things that only the Holy Spirit can do. But the thing that I would have us, and I'm so zealous and eager to enforce uh, this morning for us, is that you should have assurance of your election. That's the heart of this text. And I, I say that because there's some 
in, in the Reformed past who have kind of made it a, well, a, a pious practice to run around doubting election. And they liked other people to doubt there, so they write books about why you should not have assurance. I don't know if you know that or not, but there's actually people in the in the past out there, and I've encountered some of these writings, and I've read them, and I've I've talked to people who've struggled because of those writings. But but I I want you to know the Apostle Paul does not point you to something mystical or mysterious or supernatural as the ground and foundation of your assurance of election. He points you to things that are obvious, that are objective. The word was preached. And the, the fact that you believe can only be accounted for by this operation of the Holy Spirit because no one believes without it. Then point them to, to mystical things, to experiences, to miracles. There are whole uh, portions of the church today that teach that you cannot have assurance of your salvation election unless you witness a miracle. Yeah. That's not what the Paul does. Paul doesn't say, well, I know you're saved because miracles were performed. No, he says, I point you to the preaching of the Word. He reminds them of the Spirit's work. He doesn't say, how much fruit do you have in your life? And then maybe we can entertain the idea that you're possibly assured of your election. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't say, pry with me into the secret counsels of God, and maybe we'll figure this out together. Why do we insist that those are not the grounds? Number one, because you're not God and you have no access to His eternal decree. And if you sit around trying to figure out assurance of your election based upon how much fruit you have in your life, you'll fail. You'll either become a legalist or you'll become so distraught you will never find grounds of assurance. Only the legalist will look at their life and say, man, I've really got Christianity down. Good for me. I think I'll help people figure out how to straighten out themselves too while I'm at it. Now that's only a legalist would say that. A Pharisee would say that. Because the honest Christian looks at their life and they say, I have so much need for improvement. They'd never be able to say, well, sure. Got all the fruit I need to prove my election. We look to that which is plain, the gospel preached, the testimony that's unshakable, that if we believe, whosoever should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. And know that if we have believed, it's because the Spirit of God worked that in us. The apostle proclaimed this great message to the congregation in Thessalonica because he wanted them to know the assurance of God's love in their life. What a beautiful message. He wanted them to know the assurance of God's love. Why? Let me give you two quick things as we conclude here. The purpose of it all is fruitfulness. The purpose of it all was fruitfulness. And one way we can get to that point is by just uh, simply noting uh, what the first words are in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Finally then, you have two words there that show us the Apostle Paul is transitioning to a new line of thought and that it is inseparably connected to it. something he's just said. 
So typical of the Apostles' letters that he has the Gospel and the Declaration of Promises and Blessings on the front side, and then the second, the Exhortations and Instructions. And they're always seamlessly connected together like this. And so here you have it. The Apostle Paul says, finally then, well, what is he reaching back to? What he's reaching back to is the old testimony of God's work in their lives and of the Gospel. And I want you to read on to see what the Apostle Paul wants them to do. It's right here in black and white in the very first verse. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. I love the translation that's in other uh, English translation where it says abound more. You're already doing it. But he's preaching to them and teaching to them that they'll even do more. Well, you see, what he's doing is encouraging a life of fruitfulness by proclaiming unto them the foundation of God's mercies. And that foundation is God's election, God's choice. And God's affecting that in the preaching of the Word. You see, when we are assured of the fact that our hope of eternal life is secured in the Lord Jesus Christ, it produces fruitfulness, gratitude, thankfulness to the Lord for mercies. The other is obviously encouragement. And we know it's for encouragement because of the whole way the letter is structured. He begins with thanksgiving in the form of a prayer. We give thanks. This is back in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And here is a testimony of fruit in their life, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. And what follows next is the testimony of their election. You see, the apostle has this extended thanksgiving. We covered this last time. In chapter 1, there's a statement of thanksgiving. In chapter 2, there's a statement of thanksgiving. In chapter 3, there is a statement of thanksgiving. What do we call that? Redundancy. It's the department of redundancy department. Redundancy department. Is the reason for the repetition is to make the point, to be emphatic about something. This was a congregation that was in need of encouragement. And so the apostle proclaimed the foundation of God's eternal mercies in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be consoled, that their spirits would be lifted up. I think that's one of the things we need more than anything. We work so hard to put on a brave face. We work so hard to let other people think that we're doing just fine. We all so desperately on a daily basis need this. We need encouragement. We need deep consolation in our soul. We need uh, to be uplifted. Here it is. The Apostle says, thanks to God for all of His mercies to them over and over and over again so that they would be encouraged to know that God has has showered upon them grace. In the midst of doing that, He said, here is that great eternal fountain of it all. God's election. 
we conclude with that thought this morning, people of God, that this really is the fountain. Matthew Henry, looking at all of this uh, as his typical uh, sage, wise, and even pithy way, says, we should run up the streams to the fountain and give thanks to God for His electing love. He says, we see all these tributaries of grace. We see the obvious tokens of, of God's grace, His kindness, His mercy, and His love. He said, every time you, you find one of those just streaming into your life, He said, walk that stream up to its top. Trace out its origin. Dig deep into that stream. Follow it right back to the source. And he says, right there, when you go to the end of that stream, what you will find is it's flowing from the single source. God's eternal electing love. You dutifully trace those streams of grace back to that source. What you'll end up with is this. Assurance. And there's nothing more important that we need than that. The wonderful, immovable, unshakable, unmistakable, undoubtable assurance of God's love. When we have that, we'll have the kind of joy and encouragement that sustains us. And so I conclude with what is simply my prayer is that we would all know we would all know and be assured of the love of God and His choice of us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for this old message which is made new to us this morning. How it reminds us that each day You're good and faithful and true. We thank You for the deep origin and source of these kinds of tokens, Lord, for we're mindful that it's because you set your eye upon us in the eons of eternity. Not because of who we are or what we would do, but only because of, of this uh, mysterious and yet wonderful sovereign election. I ask, Lord, that each and every one here this morning may have deep assurance of it. I pray particularly for those who don't know it who struggle mightily over it, that they would weigh the argument of the Apostle not to test it, but to see that this is the way you find this great assurance, by looking at what's objective. The Word preached, the Gospel proclaimed with all of its riches about Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that it was all by your eternal divine design, and then that there's no way to believe it except the Holy Spirit bring that in power. And as they contemplate these great twin sources of assurance, that you fill their hearts with full conviction that they would have a firm place to stand, no matter what life's difficulties may bring them or how providence with its trials may assail them, they stand firm on this knowledge, God's election of them. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.